published 31 peer-reviewed journal articles so far, but the reason I started it in the first place is because many people would tell me that they could not eat wheat normally, but they could eat um, the Kamut brand products. And so I was very curious of why that was the case and what was different with modern wheat and what we had done to change it. Why couldn't they eat it? You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gervais. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gravet. I'm the host of the show. I'm also a certified holistic nutritionist and a life coach. And at Food Integrity Now, we think it's important that you learn about what is happening in our food supply so that you can make healthy choices for you and your family. We also offer a lot of information about the many health issues that are affecting us these days with the onslaught of toxins in the environment and the amount of stress everybody's dealing with. So check out our blog and you will see almost 200 shows and articles that are there just to assist you with your health. So thanks for listening. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes under Food Integrity Now. And finally, don't forget to check out our health store. All of the products that we represent and sell are only high integrity products that we thoroughly believe in. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting Food Integrity Now. Hello everyone, welcome to Food Integrity Now. My guest today is Bob Quinn. Bob Quinn is an organic farmer and progressive leader in promoting organic, sustainable agriculture around the world. With a PhD in plant biochemistry and degrees in botany and plant pathology, he has turned his northern Montana family farm into an organic laboratory. On a mission to educate as well as farm eco-consciously, Bob is the co-author of the book Grain by Grain, a quest to revive ancient wheat, rural jobs, and healthy food. Bob served on the first National Organic Standards Board and has been recognized with the Montana Organic Association Lifetime of Service Award, the Organic Trade Association's Organic Leadership Award, and Rodale's Institute Organic Pioneer Award. His enterprises include the Ancient Grain Business Kamut International, and Montana's first wind farm. Bob, welcome to Food Integrity Now. Well, thank you very much, Carol. It's great to be here. Well, I am just thrilled to have you on the show. And first of all, I love your book, and I really couldn't put it down. So today I'd like to share with our listeners more about you and your book, which is entitled Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. So I've already shared a little bit with our listeners about you in the intro, and you grew up on your family farm and then went to study plant biochemistry, and you have a PhD in plant biochemistry, and you had a few other careers before coming back to the farm. Can you share a little bit about those and why you decided to come back to the family farm? Well, the big career I was headed for in 
my university life was um, study of plants in science. And so I studied botany and plant pathology at Montana State and then went on to UC Davis in California and got my PhD, as you mentioned, in plant biochemistry. And I thought I would pursue a research career and being a, a great plant scientist, scientist. And I was a little discouraged, however, by the time I finished my PhD of the way things were working at the university. And so I opted not to go on with that. In those days when I graduated in 76, there were PhDs were a dime a dozen. And um, it was hard to find a job without going to just another postdoc fellowship to, while you waited for a job to open up. And I decided to start a business of my own and started um, a small research laboratory and um, also was selling products for medical laboratories with a friend of mine. We formed a small partnership and and uh, we did that for a couple of years and then we um, merged with a much larger company that was mostly doing forensic, um, it was the forensics laboratory and we would analyze drug paraphernalia and, and uh, then go to court and testify as to what we are finding, whether the drugs there or not. And I, I didn't find that very satisfying and I just felt uh, it would be a much better move to come back to the farm in Montana and raise my family here rather than California and that's what we decided to do. Great. So your family, they were wheat farmers, correct? Wheat and cattle, right. Wheat, we wheat had, and cattle. We had half our land was in pasture and half was in was cultivated and, and our main crop was winter wheat and we grew a little spring wheat and barley and, and little oats for the cows and that was it. Okay. So then you discovered Kemut. Uh, can you share a little bit about, first of all, what is Kemut? How did you discover it and uh, where did it originate? Well, Kemut really is a trademark. So it's a um, registered trademark that's used to uh, market an ancient wheat. And a trademark is a guarantee that an ancient wheat is always pure. An ancient wheat is always organically grown. It's high in protein and minerals. Um, it's um, low in defects, and um, and no one can um, uh, make any claims without backing it up with research. So those are the rules of our trademark. And the ancient grain that we were uh, focusing on marketing was actually a common name is Coruscant. And I first saw it and, and heard about it being called King Tut's Week because it was reportedly taken out of some, the tombs of Egypt. But many years later when I got to Cairo myself, I found that wasn't true, but that was the story we were told. It's a great and story, I, though. <laughs> it was a great story. And, <laughs> and it was a great novelty in the county. It had come to the county about 1950 from a, an Air Force guy that was stationed in Portugal, and he met a fellow at a bar one night that was showing him this ancient or this very large weed he claimed came out, he took out of a tomb in Egypt when he was there on furlough. And, and uh, this Montana fellow sent some back to his dad and it grew. So that should have been the first clue that it hadn't been sitting in a tomb for 4,000 years. But anyway, that was the story they told and, and they passed it around the, the neighborhood as just a novelty. Um, and I first saw it at the county fair about 63 or so when I was still in high school. Wow. And so uh, I know that later on you, you did some research and you found out where it originated, what, what area of the world. 
Well, that's right. We first spent some time having it properly identified. Um, we didn't have it identified correctly when the first first um, opinion we got wasn't right, and we finally got it properly identified by the um, small grains um, uh, seed bank in um, Idaho, USDAC small grains collection, and um, then we started doing some research on it because we found discovered just um, accidentally that. People who cannot eat modern wheat were, had no trouble eating this grain. And that put us onto a whole road of, of discovery and research and, and really trying to understand what was going on, both with what we had done with modern wheat to change it so people couldn't eat it anymore, but at least 20% of the population can't eat it. And um, how it was different from these ancient wheats that were still in existence, even though they weren't commercially available. So you started planning this Kamut uh, more or less as an experiment, didn't you? Can you share with us about that? Well, we had our first. My first idea was to sell it to corn nuts, and because corn nuts is made with a giant corn, and I wondered if they'd be interested in a giant wheat. And when I called them up, they said, "Oh yes, we'd be interested in that." And I called my dad, and I said, "Dad, see if you can find some of that old King Tut's wheat." And it's about 14 years after I had first seen it. And he was able to find some in the basement of one of his friends had a small jar and they sent me a couple of tablespoons and they sent the corn nuts and they said, this is fantastic. He said, we'll take 10,000 bushel or 10,000 pounds. They said, we'll take 10,000 pounds right away. And I said, well, we don't really have 10,000 pounds. I didn't want to tell him I didn't even have one pound, but that was where we started. And I said, if you just wait a year or two, I said, I'll have everything you want. So I called my dad and I said, Dad, plant all that in the garden right now. And so we planted in Montana in the summer and in California in the fall. And we were able to get two crops out of it. And after about three years of two crops a year, we had 50 pounds or more. And then I called corn nuts. They weren't interested anymore. The guy that I talked to was gone and no one was interested in it. So we just put it on this, in the shed in about... Um, Six or eight years later, we went to our first health food show in California in Anaheim in 86, and my folks went to help me with it. We were selling stone ground whole wheat flour from this flour mill we started, and my dad took this jar of um, ancient grain and was showing everybody, and after three days, he had one person that showed an interest, and because of that one person, um, we pulled out the 50 pounds out of the shed and planted it all in our field, in a half acre, and... That's how we got started in 86. Wow. And how many acres do you have now? Well, a couple of years ago, when we reached our peak, there was about 100,000 that we had in cultivation in Montana, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, stretched over about 200 organic farmers. So that's amazing. So how, how, how is Camus different than conventional organic wheat? Well, it's never been changed from its original form. And um, modern wheat has been changed a great deal to increase yields at the, for the farmer, um, to increase yields for the flour mill, and especially to increase yields for the baker. And the baker increases yields by making um, uh, greater loaf volumes so they can sell more bread with less wheat. And to do that, they change the gluten to make it more complex, more elastic, and so it can hold more air. And that's probably... Uh, did more to make the bread uh, less digestible than anything else they had done to it. 
And then the bakers changed the way they were baking and, and, and went away from long fermentations to extremely short fermentations using fast-rising yeast. And that gives the fermentation uh, no opportunity to, to pre-digest the gluten or the, or the um, uh, starch or anything because it's only working on the sugar that they add to the dough. And then they pop it in the oven. And if you compare that with long fermentations, for example, 48 hours fermentations, a sourdough bread will destroy 96% of all the gluten that you find in that bread. And that takes care of most people's problems for digestibility. Uh, that's that's really interesting. And what do you think about, I, I know that some wheat, um, we're not talking organic wheat, some wheat is um, sprayed with glyphosate and because it's used as a desiccant or drying agent. Uh, do, you, yes. do you think that could be a factor also with, with the... Yes, it certainly is a factor. ...with the digestibility of gluten and it could... Absolutely, Absolutely because glyphosate is an antibiotic. Um, it works on plants by disrupting a metabolic pathway found only in plants and not in mammals or humans like us. So the shikimate pathway. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's a uh, pathway to create an essential amino acid that we cannot create ourselves. We have to eat it, eat that amino acid, and plants make it. But that pathway is also found in many bacteria, which makes it antibiotic. And there's more bacteria found in your gut than there is human cells in your whole body. So if you start to disrupt some of those, um, with traces of glyphosate, you're going to have digestive problems that have nothing to do with the wheat at all, but with the, the trace amounts of chemicals that are uh, found on it as residues. Yeah, and you know, we live, especially here in the United States, we live in a time where so many people, I'm one of them, are gluten intolerant. And so what do, you, what do you say to people like me who feel like they can't touch wheat because they're gluten intolerant? I do not have celiac. I'm just Okay, that would be my first question. Yeah, I do not. I know. No, I know only a small percent of the population yeah. has, has celiac. One percent is celiac, and we don't, we don't uh, offer any advice to those other than to avoid wheat and the other things that their doctor has told them because it's right. very serious and can be life and death. But the other 19 or so percent that have varying degrees of sensitivities, we'd like to call them, uh, some of them are right out allergies, but most of them are more sensitivities to, to wheat or to gluten. or it's, it's more than just gluten. There's other things probably in the wheat that's also causing some of these sensitivities. Um, and, and, and it could be also the uh, glyphosate, too. So I have four, four uh, rules for you, Carol, that I think that if you follow these four rules, I, can, I can't guarantee you, guarantee you 100%, but it'll be in the high, um, low 90s or high 80s as far as the percent of success in eating wheat. So first is to eat organic. Yep. That, will take, that will take care of your, your uh, trace glyphosate residues. Yep. Um, do that. Most of my listeners do that. Okay, so that you already got the first one down. Eat only um, heirloom or ancient wheat. So any wheat that's older than, it's been on the market for more than 100 years or, well, 50 years probably, since World War, before World War II. If you eat wheat that was commonly grown before World War II, you're probably going to be okay. 
or ancient grains. So ancient wheat is einkorn, um, spelt, emmer, uh, the kamut, or the ancient grains. And then any of the heirloom wheats like um, turkey red in this country uh, for winter wheat, um, uh, red fife, uh, which is, can be a winter or a spring wheat. Um, older grains like that, if you know for sure that they're heirloom wheats and not recent um, products of plant breeding, that's the, the number um, two thing. Uh, number three is to eat whole grain. Don't eat white flour and white flour products. You're, you're losing one-third of what you of what, of what nutrition in wheat in the first place. That probably is less of a more of a nutrition uh, problem than a sensitivity problem, however. Right. right. But the fourth one then would be to avoid yeasted breads and only um, eat um, sourdough. And if you do those four things, you're going to be very, very high percent of, of solving all of your uh, wheat problems, eating wheat problems. Okay, so um, how do we get Kamut sourdough? Well, easiest way is to make yourself. Now, where do you? I'm not sure where you live. Um, I live in, some, in I live in Southern Cal. Okay, well, that, if you'll check around, there's probably bakers that are making Kamut sourdough bread. I know that there's several up in the Bay Area that are. Yeah. And um, uh, the uh, midwife and the baker just started a couple years ago, and they are making a wonderful Kamut sourdough bread. Um, Tartine Bakery in, in San Francisco is making sourdough. And, I've been and there. I love that place. Yeah, so there's other people that are doing it. It's just not, it's that is springing up all over. And um, if you go in and ask them and ask them if they make Kamut for you, if they're not, Kamut bread, sourdough bread, um, and refer to them to other bakers that are already doing it. So it's not an impossible or a new thing. Um, uh, by and large, they'll be obliging. Yeah. And uh, particularly if you get a couple of friends that go in with you, <laughs> make sure they're going to have somebody to sell to. You should be able to find something, even in your own account. Do you directly, um, and I'm asking this for a friend of mine who really wanted me to ask you this question. So here's for you, Jane. Can you, can we buy Kamut flour from you? Or do you sell to individuals or, or can you do, can, how would we get Kamut flour? I'm not, not set up. I'm not set up to do that. Uh -huh. um, I'm a farmer, and um, I did start Montana Flour and Grains, which is a flour mill, in '83. But in '99, I sold it to my employees in an effort to reduce and simplify my life, which really didn't happen. But that was one of my goals <laughs> at that time. And they're still in business, so they they will sell to you. Um, okay. Uh, they will sell to you direct. I mean, if you're talking about 50 pounds or something, if you're just looking for a few pounds, then um, I would suggest uh, going to your local health food store. Bob's Red Mill carries Kamut flour, Kamut grain, and cracked um, Kamut um, porridge for a hot cereal. Okay, and, and, and just so people understand this, because this, I think this is really important. So you trademarked Kamut. And, and tell us again what it has to be. So the trademark is um, an ancient word for wheat in Egyptian because at the time we registered that trademark, we thought we still thought the wheat came from Egypt. We, now we know that most of this type of grain originated in Mesopotamia. So the trademark means that we are making a guarantee to buyers that 
look for this trademark. It's not an ownership of the grain. I don't believe that grains or life should be patented or owned by anybody. It's a free gift from the Lord to us all, and uh, that's how we look at it. It's, but we wanted to preserve it and make sure it was always kept pure. We wanted to promote organic agriculture, and, and we believe that eating organic food is uh, more nutritious, so we required but for the use of the trademark, it always be organically grown. And we think that nutrition is really important and we wanted to make sure that this grain was grown in a way that produced high protein and it was high in minerals. And so those are the other two promises of the, of the, uh, the stand behind the trademark. And the last one is that our trademark users, users of the trademark have to tell the truth about the grain. They can't say it's wheat-free or gluten-free or non-wheat or anything like that. And, if they make any claims, it has to be backed up by research. We've done a lot of research comparing modern wheat to ancient wheat, and they're all published. Um, so that was going to be my next question, Bob. Why did you feel like it was important to do some studies? And can you share just a little bit about a couple of the studies that you've done? I know you've done quite a few, but just tell us about <laughs> a few of them. Well, sure. I'd be glad to. We published 31 peer-reviewed journal articles so far, but... The reason I started it in the first place is because many people would tell me that they could not eat wheat normally, but they could eat um, the Kamut brand products. And so I was very curious of why that was the case and what was different with modern wheat and what we had done to change it. Why couldn't they eat it? And so we started um, looking at antioxidant capacity in the beginning because I knew that the um, ancient course on wheat were growing up, uh, took up more selenium than modern wheat because of just its makeup and metabolic pathways it had in it that were different than modern wheat. And we know that selenium is a very strong antioxidant. So we found a company or a, a group of researchers in Bologna in Italy that was willing to study this um, question. And they came back with the results saying that it was significantly higher um, in antioxidant capacity, or at least the people, the, uh, well, it was an animal study, so the rats that ate it were significantly higher with uh, antioxidant capacity than with a diet of modern wheat. But what they found that was astonishing and had never been reported before about wheat is that it was anti-inflammatory. This is about the time that the uh, Wheat Belly book came out where Dr. Davis claimed that wheat, modern wheat caused inflammation. And when we looked at our, our rat study, we saw that. We saw the rats that were on the modern wheat had inflammation, um, and the ones on the um, ancient wheat diet did not have inflammation. And what was even more significant of that, those are the control rats, the rats that were actually treated with the chemical that caused um, uh, free radicals, also causes inflammation. But in the rats that had eaten the modern wheat, the inflammation was there, as they expected, quite severe, but those that had eaten the ancient grain had no inflammation. So it was actually anti-inflammatory. It was protecting against inflammatory-causing um, compounds in this case. And so then we um, hooked up with a group from the University of Florence Medical Research Hospital and started on a series of human clinical trials. And we studied irritable bowel syndrome, um, cardiac disease, all kinds of heart disease uh, were in our trials, and then diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome. 
we were looking at chronic disease because we know that all chronic disease is linked with inflammation. Yes. And we found that um, uh, in all the studies that the results were the same. These were studies that were done with um, all 30 to 40 volunteers in a double bind crossover type study, which means the groups are divided into two. One half ate the modern wheat, one ate the um, ancient wheat, and they were asked not to eat any wheat products other than what we gave them. We gave them pasta, bread, crackers, and flour. They can make whatever they wanted. And um, after six weeks, they had a washout period for another six weeks so they could eat anything they wanted. And then they switched. They crossed over and they ate the other diet. They didn't know what they were eating, and even the professors in most studies didn't know what they were eating. So that made it a double-blind study. And the crossover was the fact that they each ate both diets, which made the, an internal control, which made the studies very um, significant, even though they were small. And the results were so consistent in all of these studies that the professors were actually astonished. Um, with a heart study, for example, they didn't expect to see any results um, in many of the components you're looking at because these patients had all had at least one heart attack. One fellow had had three, and they were all on... Oh, four or five and up to ten medications. They're all on, they're all on statins to reduce cholesterol. So they said, well, you're not going to see anything with cholesterol, even though we'd seen in previous studies. But the fact was we saw a significant reduction in cholesterol by the ancient wheat diet. So it was affecting the cholesterol in a different mechanism or a different mode than the statins were doing. And it made it fair that the professors were astonished by this. Um, but and there was a and it was attuned to eight to ten percent or so that it was reducing blood sugar, reducing cholesterol, reducing insulin, reducing insulin resistance. But the difference, um, an increase, also I should say, also increasing zinc, magnesium, and calcium in the blood. But the difference in inflammatory properties that we're studying, looking at cytokine markers for inflammation, were a difference of thirty-five to forty-five percent, and it was. No one had ever seen that kind of difference before. That's really significant. Very. And, and the people, particularly the, now with heart disease and diabetes, you can't really feel much difference um, when you eat something that's not good for you. But with irritable bowel syndrome, they could feel it right away. And yeah. they know at the end with what they were eating in the, in the, in the diet that helped them feel better because they could feel it and they, did, they felt better. So that was, that was also interesting, but they also did blood work on those people too, besides having them fill out um, questionnaires of how they felt. And the blood work showed the same as all the other blood work for the other chronic diseases. Wow, that's great. And uh, you, are you going to be doing more studies? My goal right now is to um, try to put together a, or at least uh, organize a consortium of uh, three or four universities across America that would be interested in duplicating or expanding on these studies, looking at other ancient wheats and heritage wheats and other modern wheats, maybe with a bigger population, um, maybe longer studies, whatever they thought would be significant. Because the, because these studies are done in Italy, uh, they don't carry the kind of weight that they would if they were done in America, unfortunately. It doesn't mean that they're not good studies, but it's just the way science is viewed by uh, the uh, American government, particularly in establishment. Yeah. So we're trying to see if we can get a big grant from NIH or um, some other federal granting agency so it would be completely independent. It would be sponsored by 
a private co company or anything so that people couldn't be critical of that point um, and just see what we find on a larger scale. And so that's why I hope will be a, a spinoff of the research that we did. Great. So I know one of the things that you do is you export some Kamut to Italy. Can you share a little bit about that? And did you have any concerns about um, the carbon footprint of exporting it? Well, we didn't think about that in the beginning. We we were told when we first went to Europe. Actually, we didn't go to Europe. That wasn't our idea, I should say it that way. Uh, we had a company from Europe call us up in Vegas to sell them the uh, Kamut brand wheat into Belgium. And they said they'd take care of all the paperwork, all the headaches and everything, and so that's what we did. We allowed them to do that. And what I found generally, it's a lot easier to have your products um, pulled into a country than it is to try to push it into a country for export. So I've had a lot better success with that. And then it went from Belgium to Germany, really took off there, and we were told, oh, don't bother going to Italy because um, it's, it's expensive grain. The yields are low. We pay the farmers a very good and fair price, and so it's more expensive than modern than most wheat. And um, but the Italians kind of discovered it on their own, and they thought it was it's a very close relative of durum. It makes wonderful pasta, and they thought it was something that used to be Italian and it was lost and now returned to them. And they just exploded in Italy, and before they were buying seventy five percent of everything we planted. And when you asked about the carbon footprint, after we got going, we, you know, other people had asked about that. So we did a, a study, and it was interesting to note that if we were comparing um, organic grain grown in America, <clears throat> it had a smaller carbon footprint, and shipped to Italy, had, had a smaller carbon footprint than non-organic grain grown in Italy and used right there locally. The carbon footprint for chemical agriculture is so huge that it just um, masks the, um, the carbon footprint in regards to uh, shipping. And most of our shipping is by ocean freight, and of course that's the most efficient uh, shipping method anyway. But that's what we saw. <clears throat> and then when we were also um, raising safflower oil on our farm and um, selling it to, whole, to, to uh, restaurants, we supply Montana State University and the University of Montana, and we were getting the oil back from the University of Montana and cleaning it up and putting it in our tractor. And when you added that activity into the carbon footprint, it really reduced by a whole bunch by using our own fuel that we're growing on the farm. First use this food and then use this fuel. Wonderful. So and one of the things I love about the book is... Um, and you is your ethics and how you explain your business model and why you feel this type of model is so important. Can you talk about uh, this as it seems to be a, a great foundation for any business and why do you feel like this is so important? Well, my foundation is really best based on the uh, principle that everybody wins and um, if everybody's not winning, that means that a business is being built on the backs of, of uh, someone else's effort. They're not being compensated for correctly or wholly. And that's what we mostly see. We see a very high cost for cheap food right now. And the high cost starts at the farm gate where farmers aren't even paid enough 
for their grain or their production or whatever they make, uh, in almost all aspects of agriculture, they're not being paid enough to cover their cost of production. And they they just been beat down in the price to where it's below the cost of production. And, and the big farmers of, of grains and what they like to call commodities um, only survive with with significant government subsidies. So that's has the subsidy program has enabled this um, cheap food um, to be perpetuated. So that's one of the things we use as a basis that everybody wins, and we don't we don't um, believe it's right to uh, make money on the backs of somebody else. Yeah, that's that's wonderful, and it's kind of polar opposite of what these big corporations do. Many, not all of them, many are doing right now. Yeah, I just think that your book could really be a great book for somebody in any business to really learn uh, about the ethics of business. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Okay, so many, this brings us to regenerative farming. So this is the way I think that we're going to get out of this mess. Do you agree? I know that you're an advocate for this type of farming. Why is why do you feel regenerative farming is so important? Quite frankly, kind of critical right now. Well, I always connect organic with regenerative. Right. Uh, and I think that is the um, the ultimate goal because organic that's not regenerative is just as deficient in my mind as regenerative that's not organic. Right. There's in both cases, they haven't quite reached the end goal yet. And um, I don't care where people are along the trail, but if, if that's where they're heading, I'm supporting them 100%. Um, I don't, I, I, I'm discouraged with some talk that allows them to go or, or takes them just so far, but then they stop short of the ultimate goal. So I think if we look at the ultimate goal as organic, regenerative organic, and help people to get there, I think that's really important because... What we have now is a artificial system based on chemical inputs that really uh, is showing a an, a sort of a decline in profitability, and um, the wheels of that bus are starting to come off in many different ways. And I think that uh, when we're talking about conventional agriculture, which they like to call themselves conventional, that's really a misnomer. The conventional is what we've been doing for ten thousand years. And this chemical experiment we've been playing with over the last 70 years is uh, completely artificial and only been able to be propped up by large inputs of money and resources. And I think it's, come, it's going to be coming to an end. We're finding that it produces food that's less nutritious. And we are creating a nation of, of uh, chronic um, illness, uh, citizens with chronic illness. And we are going to be able to survive uh, economically if, if a significant number of our people are chronically ill. And so that's another thing that behooves us to, to look at our food more critically and come up with a better system. Right, I totally agree. Well, I know that in 1990 you were appointed to serve on the National Organic Standards Board. Can you talk a little bit about your experience early on, on being on this board and uh, helping to create some of those standards? We we worked real hard to get a national law, a national definition for organic. A lot of people were critical of that, but at the time, many states had different definitions. Some states had no definition, so any, 
organicless, whatever you could call it. And many of us were afraid organic might go the way of natural, which um, 30 years ago had um, uh, had had really because it meant everything, it meant nothing. So people are using natural for everything. That's what we, we wanted to protect organic. And so we went into a national definition, got it passed, and then then we had the, then they, part of that law was the formation of a National Organic Standards Board, and I was one of the, the founding members of that. And it was our job to actually define what organic was and define how it should be certified and everything that was to go with that. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. You ta- you say in the book where the USDA came back, you know, after you gave your recommendations and said, "Okay, but we're going to allow GMOs and sludge and uh, yeah. get what else in it." And and can you share with our listeners what what you did next? We uh, kind of rallied the troops, and they had more negative responses to that than anything else that had ever been. Re- proposed out of USDA and so that really forced them back to the drawing board and they removed all those things that had never been part of organic ever and was just a uh, a pipe dream from USDA I guess. And what what he's speaking of is a comment, you know, the USDA allows a comment period. You said in the book 250,000 or 200? Something like that. It was more than ever before or since, I think, to, to comment on something. Which, which is a real testament to when people start really speaking up and standing up, what can happen. Now, I, yeah. think, I think back then it was a little easier than it is now because I think there's more corruption now. And I know that you were recently at a meeting with the EPA with my friends Zen Honeycutt and others. Yeah. <laughs> Ask them to not renew the light, uh, licensing for glyphosate. How'd that go? Well, we just explained um, the, the, some of the health problems that were starting to result because of glyphosate's prevalence in so many areas and so much of our food. And asked that at least warning labels be put on and that, that it not be allowed to be used as a um, desiccant which means it's being sprayed right before harvest, which is probably responsible for 80% or more of the, of the food contamination because of the glyphosate being sprayed so close to harvest. And uh, that we just explained that. My role as an organic farmer is to say that I had never used glyphosate on our farm ever. Um, we, we switched to organic before glyphosate was very popular in farm use. And so it's possible to farm without it just fine. And besides, it's caused us trouble with, uh, we have glyphosate in the rain now. Um, right. It's detectable. It's not very much, but it's detectable. And some of our customers are complaining about that. And so it's not only a, a value to us, it's a harm to us as, as farmers in, in marketing organic um, production. And they took notes and they, they told us how we might, um, some, some were interested, some obviously were not interested. But there was a couple that were very helpful in suggesting how we might make a um, uh, a big impact as possible in the way we requested um, evidence or made requests, offered testimony, and offered scientific evidence. So I thought that was quite 
positive in that respect. Yeah, well, I'm glad you were there and, and all the others, too. I think it was uh, well represented. So what that brings me to this question. What questions do you think our consumers absolutely have to be asking about our food supply? In other words, what can the average person do that will assist in affecting this change, which we desperately need? Well, I'd say the average um, shopper could eventually make a huge change on this is, is by um, putting at least one organic product in their grocery store basket every time they went shopping. They put in one more than they did the last time. Uh, eventually, that would turn into a, a huge impact on um, on the demand and therefore uh, the the uh, process by which it was grown and uh, it's only you know farmers don't only grow things that they can sell and if you can't sell stuff with glyphosate on it there's been sprayed with glyphosate then you're not going to raise it that way and that would do more to end chemical um, abuse and use than anything else that I can think of if everybody's just started buying a little bit more organic every month and within a few years it could be a hundred percent. Yeah, I totally agree. We vote with our dollars. So. That's right. Every time you, you eat, every time you um, shop and people complain about the high cost and there's ways that you can lower your cost by um, actually raising some of your own foods, having a garden, um, yeah. buying things in season, buying things locally. Um, buying things less processed. Uh, with this kamut grain, if you buy the whole grain, you take it home and crack it and make a porridge, um, a hot cereal for your family. Say you have a family of four, you can um, feed a family of four breakfast of porridge that sticks with you till lunch. You don't have to be snacking or anything for less than 50 cents. So you can't say that, you know, that everything is so expensive. That's not expensive at all. Um, probably the cornflakes in there Breakfast table costs way more than that. Yeah. Um, it's a feed a family for. Well, I tell people, too, they can also save on their trips to the doctors. Their health bills will go down just by going uh, going organic because they won't have that chemical burden. Exactly right. And yeah. people have done that. We have friends in, in um, uh, Nebraska that told us about their neighbors that actually did that very thing, went strictly organic. Uh, increased their food bills by about six thousand dollars because they they uh, they did spend more on food, but they decreased their medical bills by twenty thousand. And and they also didn't eat out very much because well they didn't eat out except where they could find organic. Yeah. But they started preparing more at home, so they didn't really cost them as much as um, it might have. But where they really saved was on their medical bills. Yeah. I interviewed Joel Salatin a couple of years back, and I asked him uh, the question, what do you say to people who say it's too expensive? And he, he's great. You know, he, he said, well, I'm going to come into your home, and I'm, first of all, I'm not going to see Starbucks cups everywhere. And then I'm gonna. You're not gonna have the latest iPhone, and you're. It's just, It can be a question of priority, is what he's yeah. saying. Yeah. Spend money on your food first because your food is. If you're eating healthy food, you're gonna you're gonna be healthy, and there's nothing more valuable than that. Well, I tell people they say, well, I can't. Uh, well, to eat organic costs so much. And I say, well, how much does it cost to be sick? Just share with them the facts in the last. 
50 years, um, the um, a percent that we spend on food has been cut in half from around 18% right. to 9%. So we're, when we were spending 18%, was it too expensive then? I, people were still living and breathing and, and, and able to feed themselves by and large. But what has replaced that is the medical costs have gone from 9% to over 18%. So it just flipped those two. And I think that um, if people had a choice, they would rather spend more in food and, and a lot less on health care. And the way the people have experienced it, they actually see that happen. And it's not just, um, you know, it's not just a saying or a fancy marketing ploy. It's what's out there. It's real life. Yes, I totally agree. Well, that's wonderful. So thank you, Bob, for being a guest today on Food Integrity Now and for writing this great, great book, Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Foods. I highly recommend it. And I'll put a, a link uh, to where they can buy it on my website, and you pretty much find it anywhere that you would buy books. And I want to give our listeners, to your website. So how can they find out more about about you or and and Kamut, can you just give us a, a website sure. or two? I can. Um, the Kamut uh, information is at Kamut.com, K-A-M-U-T.com. Okay. And if you want to see a lot of nice pictures of our farm and and read some of my opinions on other things, you can go to Bob Quinn Organic Farmer.com. That'll take you to our uh, Instagram and blog and all that kind of stuff. And I just wanted to tell you, Bob, I really admire you for your courage, for your tenacity in uh, creating this business model. And that, and that, that's really true. That's what I loved about this book. You just kept going. Yeah. <laughs> and creating that business model and farming model that really works for humanity in comparison to corporations whose industrial model is based on, a lot of it is corrupting science, greed, and control. So thank you so much for doing this and for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the visit. Yeah, I did too, and I, I learned a lot from your book too. Thank you. Again, and we'll be back soon with another great show. 